This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Hey, welcome to Den Talks. This is Tal, the founder of Den Meditation, and I'm with Emily Fletcher today, who's the founder of Ziva Meditation. She's the author of newly released book, Stress Less and Accomplish More. She's a former Broadway actor turned well-known meditation teacher, and she's the perfect person to talk to about the nuances of choice and life shifts. We dive into the idea of falling in love with the search and pursuit of happiness versus actually being okay with happiness itself. She's also unbelievably well-versed in the neuroscience as well. So we talk a lot about how we need to use both sides of our brain equally, which right now we're not even close to doing, and how our left side is about individuality, and our right side is about creativity and connecting to the universe. When we use both simultaneously, it's when you find yourself in the flow and at the top of your game. Also, we chat about how meditation helps you start seeing yourself and others. So when you can see yourself as being part of a bigger whole or something much bigger, it's going to affect the greater consciousness. So we discuss how you don't even have to do these jobs in the wellness space, that you can do it everywhere and doing something no matter what you're doing, at what level, if you're in politics, if you're driving a lift, if you're just walking down the street, if you're a teacher, if you're doing it with greater consciousness, it's going to help the world as a whole. So I'm going to leave you with that as there's so much delicious stuff to ponder in this episode. If you're a meditator, it's going to redefine the why and the how. If you're not, it's going to make you want to start immediately. So let us know what you think on our Facebook page where we chat about all these episodes. And don't forget at the end, she's going to lead us in her personal practice, which is a combination of breathwork and mindfulness practice. Hope you enjoy the episode. I get to sit here with my friend, Emily Fletcher, today, and I'm so excited. Emily and Ryan Weiss together were like the first people at the den, practically. It was it was like the day before we opened up officially, and so many people came to see them. We had to squeeze in 80 people into den one, and I had no clue what the capacity could be. I mean, people were like sitting in the hallways. What an amazing night for me to see the den be used that way, and then to get to meet you was incredible. And so not only is she a gorgeous goddess, she is a former Broadway actor turned meditator, she founded Ziva Meditation and is now regarded as a leading expert in meditation for high performance, which I can't wait to chat about. She's taught over 15,000 people how to meditate. She's been featured in the New York Times, the Today Show, Vogue, ABC News, and was named one of the top 100 women in wellness to watch. She created the Ziva Technique, which is a combination of mindfulness, meditation, and manifestation. It's all geared towards unlocking your full potential, which I know we are all striving to do every single day. So lucky for you guys, you can learn an adaptation of this in her new book, which just came out, Stress Less, Accomplish More. Congratulations. Thank you. And because Emily's amazing, we're going to do a giveaway with one of you lucky people. So make sure you listen to the end of this because we're going to give you all the information. So also at the end, like always, she's going to do an incredible personal practice, which is going to be a combination of breath work and mindfulness. So Let's actually start with just pretty broad, and then I want to get into some nitty-gritty about you personally. But what does make Ziva different than other meditation techniques? Well, sort of what you just said, that we teach this beautiful trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting in a way that makes people self-sufficient. So one of the things I love about our teachings is that I give people the keys to the car and the driving instructions, and then they have this practice to take with them for life. And to my knowledge, there's no one that's teaching all three of these things in a way that people have the tools you know, to take with them. And like you also said, we really focus on meditation for extraordinary performance because I believe that we meditate to get good at life. 
not to get good at meditation. I love that because <laughs> I feel like that's what we always say here too. Like this is a catalyst for living your life better. It's like, and when people are like, I'm not good at it, I'm not good. It's like, just keep doing it. It unlocks so much. Yeah. Like, like no one cares if you're a good meditator, sadly. Nobody I'm, knows, yeah, by the way. I'm really competitive <laughs> and I really like to be the best at things. And so sadly, no one cares if you're a good meditator, but everyone cares if you're good at life. How kind are you? How compassionate are you? How healthy are you? How many sick days are you taking? How creative are you? And if you actually commit to a daily practice, these are the things that start to up-level in your life very quickly. So, and I love that you said that, how kind are you? And you said yourself, you are a competitive human being. I mean, Mm -hmm. I am too. How do you feel like meditation has changed your competitive edge? Mm -hmm. And I think also this goes into a question that people worry about sometimes. How does it change your personality? Yeah. So I don't think meditation changes you. I think it makes you more yourself. It just makes you you without the stress. And so I don't think competition is a bad thing. I think I'm sort of of the Ayn Rand fountainhead that it is the ego that moves society forward. It's only when that gets out of balance that it becomes toxic and a sickness. And we are decidedly out of balance. But it doesn't mean that the ego is bad. It doesn't mean the left brain individuality is bad. What I love about the traditions that I come from are that they really celebrate both the individual and, and totality. It's the human and the divine happening simultaneously, the left brain and the right. And if you look at a human brain, it splits right down the middle, 50-50. Left brain is individuality, right brain is totality. And I don't think that nature makes mistakes. I don't think nature would have given us 50-50 if it wanted us to use 90-10. Now, how much are people using? I mean, that's what I think most of us are like thinking, taking action, achieving, making money so we can be happy in the future. And we've gotten out of balance. We spend too much time in that left brain individuality. And so what I love about meditation is it starts to take your right brain to the gym and for a lot of people, the pendulum swings for a little bit. We get a little airy-fairy, hippy-dippy, <laughs> spacey for like a hot second. But then over time, if you stay in the saddle, you really create this brain cohesion. You start to strengthen the corpus callosum, which is the thin white strip that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And you start to increase your neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change itself. And that is happening because the whole brain is lighting up at one time. And so I think it's just about you becoming a whole balanced, beautiful human that's tapping into not only your left brain intellect, but also your right brain. I like to think about it like the, the router that connects you into creativity itself. If you think about creativity as a Wi-Fi network, your right brain is the router that puts you online, that gets you on Wi-Fi. And a lot of us are only having access to our left brain uh, intellect, which is like having a really great laptop, but not connected to the internet. How do you talk, to, like, so then someone who's, let's say, super creative, like, an actor, which you were, and I want to dive into that too, or a writer or an artist, but they're still struggling. They're not meditators, let's say, and they're still struggling in life. How do you kind of navigate that as far as right brain and left brain? It's more a question of both. Like I find that meditation balances you. So if you're someone like you and I that vibrates very high, Mm -hmm. meditation can be grounding and calming. If you are someone who's a little bit lethargic or a little bit sluggish, then meditation can give you more energy. It's adaptogenic. It's totally adaptogenic. Like the crazy mushrooms that we're yeah, all taking. Yeah, I know. It's taking. like my new favorite word. Yeah. I'm like, if there's one thing that does everything, yes. depending on what you need. <laughs> but that's kind of how meditation is. It meets you where you are and then takes you where you need to go. So, and how, so talk about, is there a moment you could kind of describe this one when your left and right is balanced? Like, is there something that feels like, is there something that's happening mm-hmm. in your life? Yeah, it's flow state. It's when you're in the middle of a high demand situation, you're giving the presentation, you're on the date, you're playing the sport, you're, you know, in the high demand situation, but you're simultaneously able to access your intuition, your creative problem solving abilities, your present moment awareness. That to me is flow state when the whole brain is working as it's designed. 
So, and I love this because honestly, it's funny we got to it earlier, but I did want to talk to you about right and left brain. Do you find when people are coming to you, it's easier to talk about the neuroscience of this all so people can kind of digest meditation? I think that science is catching up to what these Indian dudes have been saying for 6,000 years. And so great, you know, thank you, neuroscience. Um, And yes, I think that my sort of armchair neuroscience expertise gives me a bit of street cred with skeptical New Yorkers and high performers who tend to think that meditation is a little woo-woo. So I definitely lead with it. But you don't really need the science. It's... um, it works whether the science is there or not. But yes, I do think it helps people to get over their skepticism. And do you feel like, so if the science with the left and the right brain, again, in the balance is flow state, like you're about to go give a talk and you like to meditate right before you to give the talk? I meditate regardless in the morning, although full confession, I did not meditate this morning. Yeah, but your so child was, was up like every two hours. And I, I, I mean, I'm in this hilarious day, just like I had a staff meeting that I forgot about and like I have to check out of my Airbnb and I'm going to give this talk downtown LA. It was just like a hilarious logistical day. Some days are like that, nothing, like everything's yeah. just off. I yeah. kind of just accept those days finally. I'm like, this is what it's going to be today, clearly. Yeah, that's what I said in the shower. I was like, you know what? Like, it's all going to be fine. You're going to do this podcast. It's going to be great. You're going to get to see your friend Hall. I'm going to get this beautiful opportunity to share and speak to these humans at this conference and it's all going to be fine. And I'm going to trust my 11 years of meditation experience going to have my back is going to get me through one day. <laughs> but yes, normally before I go up and give a talk, I won't meditate because I usually do that first thing in the morning. But what I will do is something called balancing breath where I, it's like an alternate nostril pranayama breathing where I just close the right and left nostrils, which again helps to get into that right brain, left brain flow state. So talk about, so talk about how your techniques evolved. Like how, have, how did you start to realize there was like a trifecta that was missing? Mm from what might exist already. Yeah. So a lot of people are either teaching exclusively mindfulness or exclusively teaching what I would call meditation. And I think it's valuable to, as we go on this journey, let me just take a pause and and define the difference, how I would define the difference between the two. So I would define mindfulness as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Beautiful, powerful. And a lot of the breath work techniques, a lot of the scans, a lot of the apps, a lot of the guided visualizations that we'll do, I will put that in the category of mindfulness where someone's guiding you through so you are directing your focus. So a small part of the brain lights up but very, very bright, which is different than what I would call meditation, which is all about surrender. It's all about deep healing rest. It's all about getting rid of the stress from your past. So mindfulness, very good at getting rid of your stress from the now, like a state change. You know, I'm stressed. Let me go to the den. I'm going to go to this amazing class and I feel so much better when I walk out of the door. To me, and the meditation that I teach at Ziva is all about giving your body very deep healing rest, rest that's deep, five times deeper than sleep. And when you do that, you get rid of not only your stress from the now, but all that backlog of stress that's been stored in our cellular memory. And ultimately, it's the eradication of that backlog of stress that allows you to start performing at the top of your game. And that doesn't make, you know, dropping classes irrelevant or meditating with people is so powerful. Like, it's all good. I just think it's important that we understand the differences between the two. So when I first started teaching, I was exclusively teaching meditation and I loved it. But what I realized is that with a lot of these practices, there's so much focus on increasing your state of consciousness and getting to like whatever your version of enlightenment is, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a male thing where you're just like, I'm going to get to this goal. I'm just going to take everything upward. But meanwhile, all along the way, if you're letting go of that backlog of stresses, a lifetime of sadness and trauma and mourning and all of the stuff that's in there, all the stuff that's happened in our lives, all that like shadow darkness does start to come up and out. And I consider that a very important part of my job is helping people through that detox, that emotional and physical detox that happens for people. And what I was finding is that in a lot of other traditions, which are largely male dominated, they weren't giving as much time 
or tools or technique or care. It's like the nurturing was missing. Yeah, the nurturing to, to give people the space and the tools to let that stuff come up and out. And this is hugely gender stereotypical, so I apologize in advance. But <laughs> if we're going to stereotype, like women do have a tendency to sit into and feel and want to process their emotions and let them up and out. Whereas men have a tendency to want to compartmentalize or move on or just shove it down. And so what, what I was seeing was a lot of very enlightened, wounded people, people who are in very high states of consciousness, but who had not really done the work to heal their old trauma. And I think that that can be dangerous. And so I just, I wasn't really liking what I was seeing in a lot of the communities. And now with this Me Too movement and the rising of the divine feminine, it's like, we got to be really impeccable with our word. We have to be impeccable with our associations. And so I just started asking the question, well, how, what does Emily Fletcher bring to this conversation? I've been doing this for 11 years. I've taught 15,000 people to meditate. I don't have to rely on other people telling me what to do anymore. I trust myself enough. I have enough field experience to ask the question, well, how does the divine want to move through me? What's, what does Emily Fletcher add to this conversation? And I thought it was really an opportunity to combine the beauty of these two very different roads that lead to the same place. But I do love that because I do feel like we talk about this a lot, how, you know, people come in to learn how to meditate or start meditating or are meditators and they think their life's going to get better with just a snap. Like, that's it. I did it. Everything's supposed to be better. Mm-hmm. We always say, no, there's like work involved. And I do want to touch on and have you talk a little bit more about what that means, because I do think the minute, like you said, there's like a, you know, a little bit of a fairy day or like, woohoo, everything feels great. And then sometimes real shit comes up. And how do you talk someone through that where people then think, oh, it's not working. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's not working. This doesn't work for me. I- I'm just not happy. Or I'm like, I remember there was, there's times where I laugh when I'm like meditating insanely. Like it's the most I can possibly like hour here, hour there, like whatever. And it's almost like those are the days sometimes I'm the most annoyed. Yeah. And like, I have to actually talk myself through and be like, well, that's your stuff coming up. That's good. Like it's actually, but walk us through that a little bit, because I think that's actually a really important delineation. So for people to realize or be aware of at least while they start this journey for themselves or already in this journey, that that's why some of these moments are hard. That's why sometimes it is difficult or you have really shitty days while you're actually meditating. It doesn't mean that the meditation's not quote unquote working. Yeah. So it's just like doing a juice cleanse or a water fast or something. Day three, day four, you feel awful. (laughs) Stuff starts coming out of your skin, your tongue. You get angry, tired, foggy. And that's because your body's going into fasting mode and it's starting to let go of all the junk, the Taco Bell, the Jack Daniels, the (laughs) all-nighters. And that stuff has to go somewhere. Like the universe and your body are both perfect accountants. So all the stress, everything that's ever happened to you is in fact stored in your cellular memory. And when we start meditating, when we, <clears throat> what we do at Ziva is we do use a mantra and that word mantra has been a little hijacked by the wellness industry. Yeah. So it's not like an affirmation. It's not like, I'm a strong, angry woman. <laughs> um, they're actually meaningless primordial sounds that we use. And that it's the sound quality of those mantras that goes in and de-excites the nervous system. And when you de-excite something, you create order. When you create order in your cells, that's the thing that allows that lifetime of stress to come up and out. And if you have some sad flavored stress inside, you might have a little sad flavored stress coming up and out. If you've got some exhaustion inside, you might have some tired flavored stress coming up and out. And so a lot of people will say to me on like day two or day three of the course, they're like, Emily, I think this meditation is making me tired. And it's like, no, meditation isn't making you tired. What meditation is doing is that it's going in and getting rid of the adrenaline and cortisol that have been unsustainably propping you up. And then what you're left with is the truth. What you're left with is how tired you have been for decades. And now we have to do the work of getting in the chair every day, twice a day, and giving your body this deep rest. Mm. It's also, it also happens physically. Like it's not just emotional. People sometimes will <clears throat> have 
like they'll go to the bathroom a lot. Their nose will run. They'll get itchy. They get, I mean, it's almost like things, things get highlighted for deletion. Just like a Word document, if you want to delete something, you first have to highlight it. And that's what happens to all of our ailments in the body. They, they kick up before they leave the building. I think that's so helpful for people to actually just pay attention to. And I feel like it'll keep people on course. Yeah. And I, I make these nerdy like songs. I have this online course that I do this nerdy dance. Where I'm like, better out than in. Uh, better out than in. Uh-uh. Better She's out than in. She's dancing, people. Um, yeah. <laughs> now because I am too. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like then if you see me doing a silly little dance and a little, you know, white girl rap, then it's when it comes up for you, you're like, oh, right. Better out than in. in. Better out than in. Mm-hmm. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I want to talk about our next Dentox Live. We are so unbelievably lucky. We have Sean Korn. She was one of the first internationally celebrated yoga teachers. You know how we know everybody on IG now? She was literally one of the first that everyone started talking about. And she is just known for activism. She actually started off the mat and into the world. And since 2007 has taught so many leaders of activism to bridge the gap of injustice around the world. She's incredible. She sells out wherever she goes. So this interview is going to be great. It's January 24th. That's a Thursday night at 7 p.m. Don't forget what comes with that. I promise it'll be an in-depth conversation. Also a Q&A for you guys to have your own chance to talk to her and a personal practice. And don't forget, when she practices, she sells out. So this is a really unique opportunity. And per usual, we'll have some wine and cheese, snacks and drinks afterwards so we can all mingle and just like hang out. This is incredible. I can't express how lucky we are to have her. I hope to see you there. The Vedas are a human interpretation of natural law. It's basically how do humans interpret nature? And the gig with the Vedas is, look, you can either understand how nature is working and get in line with it and get in flow state and have nature help you get you to where you want to go, or you can be rigidly attached to how you think life should go and let nature bash you against the rocks. And I think that's where a lot of us are. And that's why I think the quote unquote ego is considered bad because for most of us, it's all we have access to is the left brain individuality, quote unquote ego. Now, the language that, that I would use from the Vedas is that it's all self, that at the end of the day, there's only one thing and we're all it. And that one thing is consciousness. And the analogy that we use is that we're all different waves on this giant ocean of consciousness, right? So I'm the wave that looks like Emily and you're the wave that looks like Tall. But at the end of the day, we're just curved ocean. We're shaped consciousness. We're all God particles. We're all Higgs boson particles pretending to be human. And so if you don't have a daily practice to help you access that right brain or that totality or source energy or whatever you want to call it, then all you have access to is your left brain. And, and it's when things get imbalanced that it's quote unquote bad. That's when things get, we operate from a place of greed, from a place of lack, from a place of competition. But I think if, if you're really firing on all cylinders and you have both, then it's 50% individuality and 50% totality. And rather than calling it ego, we use the words like small s self and big s self. Yeah. Right. So you're operating from like the wave or the ocean. But the thing is, the wave is never not the ocean. And the ocean is never not the wave. Like if you're in your body and you're having thoughts, then you are an individual. So to try and shun that and pretend like you're only the ocean doesn't make any sense. Right. I think it's really about celebrating both. It's interesting, too, for people who are nervous about giving up like the individual. Like when you put it that way, like, again, if you're kind of tapping into the competitive side of life, Mm -hmm. there's so much more if you're part of something bigger. Yes. And then you don't have to work so hard because you've got like all of nature, all of ocean conspiring to help you get to where you want to go. So that's actually, so let's talk about that because I know a lot of what you do, like you say in your thing is this is to help you find your full potential. So talk about how using your individuality and who you are and what it is you may want specifically that might be different of Emily or Tal or Joe Schmo, how that 
then connects to greater consciousness, to the ocean, and actually you can find your own potential to actually grow and be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Like how is letting go a little bit and trusting actually get you to where you need to go? I think we get competitive when we think that um, there is the idea of other, you know, like I'm a three foot wave and you're a one foot wave, so you better get out of my way. Or, uh uh-oh, I'm a three foot wave and she's a five foot wave, so I better get out of her way. But at the end of the day, if you really see that, if you see yourself inside of everyone and everyone inside of you, then you actually get pleasure from helping other people and you get pain from hurting other people. And so it just sort of innocently and spontaneously, you become more collaborative versus competitive. Um, and I, I kind of made the joke that I was the most competitive meditation teacher in the land, but it's, it's a flavor of my old right, self, you know, which personality is, versus how you actually behave. Yeah. And, and I think that when you start to collaborate with people, you realize that we don't actually all want the same thing. Like you have different desires than I have. And I have different desires than you have. And I believe that our desires are divinely inspired. Nature is the one who put our desires inside of us. And so for me to go after my desires doesn't diminish your ability or potential to go after yours. And actually, as I help you attain your desires, it probably is going to help me learn something along the way as well. But and so where does empathy fall in all of this? Well, from a neuroscience standpoint, empathy is the connection between your insula, which is the empathy center of the brain, and the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, which is the piece of the brain that processes information about people that we perceive as separate. And so I actually have a whole talk called How to Save the World in Two Simple Steps, which I'm really proud of. And in it, I talk about how the biggest threats facing humanity right now are climate change, racism, and the fact that our food isn't food anymore, and that these are actually symptoms of deeper underlying imbalances. And the underlying imbalance underneath food and, and well, underneath food is greed. And then underneath racism is this idea of separateness, but both are healed in the same way. Because when you start meditating, you strengthen the connection between that empathy center and the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. You actually, just by product of you getting to the chair every day, twice a day, you start to see more of yourself inside of others and not just, well, if I'm a rich white lady, then I see myself in other rich white ladies. Or if I'm a black person, then I see myself inside of other black people. It's like you actually see yourself inside of people that we previously perceived as separate. And holy moly, if we're not in a time where we need to do that, like we, we I mean, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, Trump supporter, Obama supporter, like we, we've really vilified and we're starting to dehumanize people who are people. Because they have different beliefs than oh, us. Oh, I'm struggling with it so much. Yeah. It's really hard for me to be around with so much hatred. Like mm-hmm. it's, I had a friend actually the other day, and I've been preaching this since the election. I've been saying like, oh my God, can people just listen to what other people are saying or understand why they made the choices they made instead mm-hmm. of automatically hating them for them? Because yeah. it's not going to help us at all. And you're just watching the divide get wider and wider yeah. and wider. And people defending things you know they don't even believe anymore on both sides. Mm-hmm. Defending things they don't believe just because they feel like they have to be part of a side. Yeah. Um, and I had a friend, it was really cracked me up because I would kind of get yelled at a little bit. People automatically thought I was a supporter of the opposite side just because I would say that, just because I wasn't. And my friend was like, I've really been thinking this tactic over. I feel like a new tactic of the way this side could particularly win is if maybe we soften it, we actually listen to what other people are saying and we're kinder. And I almost started laughing. I'm like, yeah, I, I agree. But I w- wanted to be like, hello, this is what I've been saying. Yes. But you got to get there when you're ready. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really true. It's yeah. really sad because mm-hmm. there's just a lot of us and them. But look, this is the world we have to change. And yeah. I really believe that if we're not going to change the world by continuing to treat the symptoms, 
we have to actually go under the, we have to go after the underlying imbalance. And the only way to treat the underlying imbalance is ultimately to change the state of consciousness that has created these decisions. And the, and the fastest way to do that really is through meditation. It's why I've dedicated my entire life and career to giving these consciousness raising tools to people because as Einstein said, no problem can be solved at the same state of consciousness with which it was created. So this book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, I've taken what I consider to be the very powerful medicine of meditation and wrapped it in some delicious candy coating of better sex and better parking karma and more money. <laughs> and I'm trying to meet people where they are because if you're still in the I'll be happy when syndrome and you want those things, those sort of external pleasures, well, yeah, meditation is going to give that to you. But then what we do at the end of the it's book a is byproduct. We, yeah, the, we pull the lens out. We're like, what's also going to make you less of a dick. And like, regardless of you, if you started meditating because you want less cellulite, great. I don't care. Just because get it, there. Get just, there. just get there. Because your brain is going to start firing in a different way. You will become more empathetic and more compassionate. You will start to see yourself inside of others. And I really think that's the only way to shift these big problems that we're facing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's part of what the den's about too. We always say, just get in here because like whatever your reasons are for getting in here, big, small, whatever that is, like it's only going to benefit every single person and benefit the world. Like mm -hmm. I always say that. I'm like, it's just going to keep, it just keeps raising consciousness and benefits everybody. Yeah. So about that, when you're looking to attain something that you think is going to make you happy, let's shift to you a little bit. So you, all in all, you grew up like a pretty happy kid, right? I mean, where were you, where were you raised? Tallahassee, Florida. Right, Tallahassee, Florida. You were a theater major and then on Broadway. I mean, mm -hmm. you actually had a successful career on Broadway. Ten which years. most people cannot say. So what happened? What was the shift? What was the change? How did you end up now? this amazing woman spouting out neuroscience, teaching meditation over 15,000 people with her own company and now a child. Like, what was the transition? Well, my last Broadway show was a chorus line and I was understudying three of the lead roles. So right. that means you show up to the theater, have no idea which character you're going to play. And sometimes I would just be chilling in my dressing room doing my taxes. Someone would say, Emily Fletcher, we need you on stage. And I would start panicking and didn't know which costume to put on. So sometimes I would be on stage before I knew which character I was. I'd be like, oh, well, there's no Val. So I guess I'm Val. And just into tits and ass. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's the song. I was not a stripper. And, <laughs> um, and then finally, I started going gray at 26. I started having insomnia. I couldn't sleep through the night for 18 months. That I was started... this all at the same time, like while you were in this play, while you were in Chorus Line? Yeah, this is all Chorus Line. Um, because it was just like, some people are good at that job. I am not one of them. Like I was just living my life in constant fight or flight. And, mm -hmm. but that's like, learn. I mean, just so people get it. I mean, that's being completely a thousand percent prepared to be three different characters. That's words of songs, how to sing them, lines, how dance to dance, moves. how to dance, Which how to number? be with, yeah, you're on the right a, or the left or you're on number eight or number six. Yeah. How to be with a partner. I'm sure in some of them, like mm -hmm. it's a, I mean, it's a lot to do one of those. Mm -hmm. So you had to know all three perfectly and be able to shift seamlessly in between. Mm -hmm. And That's be stressful. like warmed up and ready to do it like vocally and physically. You just have to be ready. And there was this one role that I was terrible at, Val. I understudied Val. And for those of you who know the show, she's like this short, blonde, like girl who's like kind of ugly, but she got a boob job. And so like once she got a boob job, her whole career changed. <laughs> and like, I'm not that, like I'm like five nine. I used to be a model. Like I'm just like, no one's like, oh, you got a boob job and now you're working. Like it just doesn't make sense right. for me. Right. And so it, it just, the audience was just always very confused. And then the girl that I understudied often would call out halfway through the show. So it would start like appropriately cast as this like spunky little 
little blonde girl. And then halfway through, like I would show up this like five, nine redheaded, like so goddess even, lady. And they're like, what's going that's on? That's confusing. <laughs> and there's no intermissions. They don't make any announcements. <laughs> so there's just like, audience is like, what? So it's just working against the grain. Why and, would she call out in the middle usually? I mean, bless her heart. She was 21 and dealing with some things. So she actually wrote me and apologized. Um, she just came to come to some realizations and uh, wanted to apologize. And I was like, girl, because of you, I started a meditation empire. Like yeah, you have nothing you to everything. <laughs> You're like 10%. Here you go. <laughs> exactly. um, but anyway, so I started, um, you know, having like anxiety and going gray and getting injured. Now, just to back up for one second, as a child or in college or anywhere, were you stressed out ever? Did you ever, ever have like in life, you were pretty good at life. Yeah. Like I've always been like relatively great life and, you know, challenges, the normal, whatever. Course, yeah. But like, but I got great life and not, I did not struggle with anxiety or depression or any of that. I think it was just, you know, after many years of being on Broadway and many years of rejection and auditions and, and I was performing eight shows a week, six days a week for many, many years. Oy. And then this understudying thing, it's just, you know, like most of us. You have we, a breaking point. Yeah. And, and the stress starts to build up over time. But I think for me, what happened was I reached my goal. Like I got my I'll be happy when thing. And then I wasn't happy. Right. Like I achieved the goal that I thought was going to make me happy. And I was sadder than I'd ever been. Were you aware of that? Like how conscious was that or how subconscious was it? I don't think I was aware of it at the time. But now looking back, I realized that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. Like I was happiest when I was going after my goal. And then when I got it, I didn't know what to work towards. And so I just kept thinking, well, it's my next Broadway show, my next boyfriend, my next agent, my next zero in the bank account. And I did that for 10 years. And then it wasn't until I sort of hit this. I mean, it's not like it's a poor little Broadway star, but it was, it was a down point for me where I'm like rocking myself in fetal position, listening to Eckhart Tolle on repeat underneath my dressing room <laughs> table. And I was like, wait, this is not my dream. And so finally, this girl sitting next to me in the dressing room, she was understudying five of the lead roles and crushing it, including oh Cassie. And I mean, this woman was like, Every bite of food, every dance, every song was like, she's like, this is sensational. And she was Australian. So at first I thought it was just because she was an Aussie. And then I was like, no, <laughs> they this are is happy. Actually, I know. Have you ever met an so angry happy. Australian person? Kiwis too. I mean, so happy over there. It's crazy. I know. You know what they put in the water. But finally I was like, uh, I need to have some of what she's having. And I said, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. I was like, oh God. And I rolled my eyes. And then finally, I was so embarrassed about my performance. I thought, well, I got to try something. Was there a night that was specific to you being embarrassed or was it just called? Was there one night that you're finally like, okay, I can't? Well, it was the first time. So they hired me really to, to play Sheila and I was a great Sheila. I ended up like originating Sheila on the first national tour and I was Amazing. great at it and really loved it. But I ended up always going on for Val. And so I did my like two weeks, I had two whopping weeks of rehearsal to learn these roles and they trained me in Sheila. And then about eight days into my training, they said, look, Val is taking a vacation. Do you want to go on as Val? And I had been understudying roles on Broadway for nine years and I had never, ever, ever gone on. And so I just said, yes. Like, yeah, put me in, coach. Yeah. I was nowhere near prepared. I had no business going on. And so I went on this matinee as Val, having not really rehearsed for Val. I was only trained in Sheila. And then it was the first show that they comped tickets to like the theater community. So the audience was just filled with judgy gaze. And they were like, <laughs> you're not Val. And I was just sucking, just on stage, just sucking and knowing I was sucking. And it was just really And like by sucking, anytime like just not knowing your lines. Or... No, I mean, I knew my lines. Like I knew what I was doing. I just couldn't. I didn't have the endurance to do it because Val is not dissimilar from Cassie. This is way down the music theater I rabbit like it, hole. I but, like it. Um, there's like a big, like the big montage, like the big dance number. Yep. It's like a 14 minute dance number. It finishes and then Val walks out and goes into a six page monologue into her solo. 
And it takes an extraordinary amount of endurance to be able to dance for 14 minutes into a six-page monologue, into a song. Yeah, a and I just didn't have that endurance. And I didn't really have the notes. Like, I couldn't really sing it. And it was just like, it was bad. Yeah. So that after that, you were like, you're embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. And I'm not good. I'm not used to, I mean, this is sort of arrogant, but like, I'm not used to not being good at things. Like, I'm usually pretty good at the stuff that I do. Right. And um, I would say I have more of like a, you know, if that book mindset, uh, there's like a growth mindset and I forget the other one, fixed mindset. Yep. I definitely had a tendency toward the fixed mindset. I'm like, I just like to do things I'm good at. Right. Um, and you were good at a lot of things. And, so you were lucky. And this I was not good at. And it was just embarrassing. And then the more embarrassed I got, the worse my performance was. And it just became a downward spiral. So anyway, long story short, I learned meditation. First day, first course, I'm in a different state of consciousness that I've ever been in before. And I liked it. And then that night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, but if you guys are obsessed with Emily like I am and just want to read that book because she's so smart and want to take in every single thing she has to offer, you have a chance to get a free one. So here are the rules for the giveaway. Follow Den Meditation and Ziva Meditation on Instagram. Tag a friend and leave us a comment on the giveaway post. And if you want extra entries, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen. But make sure you send us a screenshot to Podcast at denmeditation.com. So yeah, when you said you had insomnia, what was that like for you? Like how bad? I mean, couldn't go to sleep, waking up throughout the night, having dreams about being possessed by the devil. Like <laughs> it was pretty bad. Oh my God. Yeah. So then you slept. You, yeah. One, so one day. Time, and that's the, if that's the only thing meditation did for me was cure my insomnia, I would have been like, good. I'm in. Thank you. But then I stopped going gray. I'm going to be 40 in March. I have one gray hair. I was legitimately going gray 11 years ago. I stopped getting injured. I stopped getting sick. I went eight and a half years without getting sick. And so I was like, why does everybody not do this? And so I left Broadway. I went to India. And then I started what became a three-year training process to become a teacher. I was not in India that whole time. I'm not that hardcore. <laughs> um, but then I opened up Ziva in 2010 or 11. Things like December of 2010. And since then, it's been the best thing I've ever done. And we started the world's first online meditation training, which I'm really proud of. Amazing. And, um, yeah. And I, and since I've sort of doubled down on the meditation for better performance and really formulated the Ziva technique, this trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting, it's just, it opened up so many more things and really crystallized, I think, what I'm here to do in this meditation world. Now talk about that. Cause I think some people kind of go through these shifts. I mean, you changed your whole career. Did you feel like you had to leave an identity behind? Was there, was the shift very smooth or were there moments where you're like, Obviously, you become more you when you're meditating, but were there times it was hard for you because you felt like you were changing who you were? Yeah, it was really hard. My, so my teacher training, I was meditating for about 18 hours a week, like in addition to apprenticing and transcribing books by hand in Sanskrit. And it was really full out. Um, but the 18 hours a week of meditating, it's basically every hurdy-poo you've ever had comes flying up and out. And the, the flavor of that sadness for me was very much the morning of my identity as an actor because I something I'd done since I was in fourth grade. And I was, I think, around 31 or so. So it's a long time of your life to be something. Yeah. And I remember one day I was actually living in L.A. And, and I was watching the Tonys like on YouTube. It was like the day after and I was watching the replay of the Tonys. I was just like sobbing, sobbing, crying. And I thought that I was just never going to do that again. But that wasn't even true because even after I became a teacher, I got invited. I did this one swan song performance and I got invited to sing at Marvin Hamlish's um, memorial concert. Marvin Hamlish P.S. won the EGOT. He was writer-composer of Chorus Line and like a million different shows. So EGOT is, he got an Emmy, Grammy, Tony, Oscar. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, he creative human. Anyway, so I performed at his memorial concert and 
I'm not kidding when I say I took the microphone from Liza Minnelli and handed it to Aretha Franklin and then Barbara Streisand closed the show. So I was sandwiched in between That's amazing. Liza Minnelli and Aretha Franklin. And I was like, good night, New York. Like, I'll never top that. Right. You're like, Drop I'm the good. mic. I'm out. Yeah. So you got like, you got your goodbye. You yeah, got your closure. You I needed. did. I did. I was like, I'm never like, there's no, like, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a good singer, dancer and actor. I am nobody's like genius at, I mean, now, I'm a really good dancer and a really good actor. I'm a <laughs> mediocre singer. And so I was never going to be the person who was like starring, like originating roles and winning Tonys. And and so, but it was good to be able to leave on like such a beautiful That's incredible. Note. Yeah. So what do you tell people like, so when people start feeling like they want to, they, there's a, an instinct in them that they want to make a change in life, like whatever it is. They don't know what it is yet. They're not happy. They probably feel like there needs to be a shift, whether it's from a career and they find meditation or seek out meditation. I feel like you're the perfect person to talk to. A lot of times people go extreme because they see you or they see other people who've made businesses out of this. So they're like, oh my God, meditation has been so amazing for me. Now I have to be either a meditation teacher or somehow in the wellness business. How, what is also the advice of like, it's not always about that. It's not always about having to change your career to that. You might find that there's other stuff for you that works. Like, how do you navigate that? Since I know your whole thing is about high performance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about like how high performance can be everywhere and mm -hmm. how you can still exist in other industries and do other things to live your full potential? Yeah, I think it doesn't matter what avenue you are in. It doesn't really matter the vehicle through which you're delivering consciousness. Like if you're in a high state of consciousness, you're going to be doing that if you're driving a lift or if you're on Broadway or if you're a screenwriter or if you are a corporate attorney. It's what what are you bringing? What energy are you bringing into the room, into your write, written work, into your social media channels? Like wherever you're interacting with other humans, what are you delivering? And I think sometimes when we find these tools, we think, oh, well, meditation is the thing that woke me up. So I have to teach meditation. But actually just you being in a high state of consciousness can shift consciousness. And and I think we don't need like a billion trillion meditation teachers, or maybe that's just me being competitive. I don't know. But I actually <laughs> <is> think <laughs> I think we actually need people in very high states of consciousness in all the industries. You know, shifting the food policy, shifting politics, shifting the way the traffic is done, cities are designed, you know, rebuilding after hurricanes. You know, we just had this devastating hurricane, Michael, it wiped out like my hometown and my family's hometown. And and I think that if we could the people who are rebuilding these towns, what if we did solar panels? What if we did green energy? Like, because this is a thousand percent a product of climate change, but no one's really talking about that. So what if this destruction could lead to creation and we actually create in a sustainable way, but that will take people on the ground, making the decisions in the construction companies, in the local governments, being like, you know what, we're going to give you a tax break if you rebuild in solar. Hey, we're going to give you more FEMA help if you actually rebuild in a sustainable way. So that doesn't mean that we're all just sitting around meditating. We need meditators in the positions where we're changing. And I love that. And I think that's really important for people because I feel like people lose perspective of their, their own perspective. And then it's like in trying to find themselves, they sometimes lose themselves mm. because they, they feel like the answer only lies in this one area. And they mm. don't, like you just said, higher consciousness can exist in everywhere, like yeah. every single version of life you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And like Mama Marianne said, I know she's coming here soon. Yes. She's like, you're wait. not too spiritual for politics. You know, we, we have to engage in the system. If you want to change the system, we have to engage in the system. And I think with a lot of spiritual practices, it's like, oh, I saw the face of God and whatever route you get to see the face of God, then you think, well, that's real. The divine is where it's at. And all this stuff of like boating and money and houses, this is all illusion. This is all fake. It's like, no, both and wave oceans all happening. The wave is not an illusion 
of a wave. That's a real fucking wave. Like, but there is also, an, but it's an appearance of separateness. So this idea between like illusion and appearance, you know, we all appear separate, but we're actually the same thing. It, but it's not an illusion. You're not an illusion. I'm not an illusion. We actually are two separate people. That is real. And so I think it's just, it's, a, it's going back to that thing that we started with where it's individuality and totality. You get the gift of seeing the divine and then you bring that into your humanness. You yeah. bring that to the voting booth. I love that. Talk about a little bit motherhood. Like, so you're mm-hmm. four months old. Babies, like, I mean, just a baby. He's so a baby, cute. Baby. But I mean, I, I know, like, it changes and it rocks everything. It's like, so how, how has it helped you or shifted your perspective? How with meditation? Mm. So, well, I guess I'll start with the positive in that I was very afraid. Like, my fear going into being a mom was that I was going to have mom guilt. That I, when I was working, I'd be guilty about not being with him. And when I was with him, I'd be guilty about not working because I sort of had that already. And surprisingly, and to my delight, I don't have that. Like when I'm with him, I'm really happy to be with way. him. And when I'm working, I'm really happy to be working. And I'm so grateful for that because I love both things very much. And um, also, you don't know how you're going to be like af- when you become a mom. Like it's possible that I'd be like, goodbye, Ziva. Like I just want to be a full-time mom. But right, you never know. You never know. Um, but like my husband was making fun of me. I was literally like, four minutes after delivery and I'm like coming up with like course ideas and titles for things. <laughs> He's like, well, I guess you're not quitting your job. <laughs> no, I mean, my legs were literally still in stirrups. They were like sewing up. That's my, how your brain works. Yeah. So um, anyway, that, so that's been fun. And then my postpartum though was really, really, really brutal. Like way harder than I thought it was going to be. And I went into it pretty arrogant. I just thought, because my pregnancy was crazy easy. Um, but we just had a, a st- string of physical challenges and it, I, mean, I just felt like I was in a war zone and between the, the hormones and the depression and the exhaustion and the physical pain. And I had a bunch of breastfeeding issues and he had jaundice and my stitches came out just like, bam, bam, so bam. After another, and you're exhausted all at the same yeah. time. And so that was really hard. And I, and I wasn't meditating cause I, I was nursing, like, you know, for anyone who has kids, you're on like a three hour schedule, like baby has to eat every three hours, but I was nursing him for an hour and then I had to pump and then I would like try and sleep for maybe like 20 minutes and then it would like start the whole cycle again. And, and so I wasn't meditating for, I'd say about a month and then a month in, I went in and started my once a day. And then when I went back to work two months after he was born, I started back to twice a day. And you could feel the difference. Oh yeah. It's funny because people used to ask me when I opened the dent, like, I had same thing, newborn simultaneously to opening a den. And people were like, your practice must be amazing. I'm like, oh my God. It was at the worst it had ever been. Cause same thing. Like my child was being fed every three hours. Mm-hmm. You're not sleeping. Plus I was basically had another baby, like a business. Yeah. And it was awful. Like it was really, really hard. I was really actually thankful when it all became more regular and I could instill my practice again and I could mm-hmm. feel the difference. But it was funny. People were like shocked by that. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like some people just becoming a mom will throw you off of your regular life. Opening a business will throw you off. Like I did it at the same time. Like I was thrown up in flips. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It's hard. And the thing is, you, you have to meditate. be kind to yourself. You have to be kind to yourself. But look, you had had years of a practice so that you could actually do that. Take so a break. You had the yeah. capacity to do that. So it's like we meditate so that we can get through these high demand times. It's so true. It is. It's like you said, it's exercising. You're exercising your muscles. So like, even if like, if you're a runner and you run all the time, you don't run for it. Yes. You might be, it might be hard coming back a little bit, but you're in shape. Those lungs are feeling good. Yeah. So that's actually a great way. And I know you have to go, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. This has been amazing. Talk to me really quickly though. What do you feel like your personal struggle is? Like, where does meditation help you the most? Mm. I mean, it just makes me smarter and it makes me nicer. And it gives me more energy. So you know how you feel like mid-afternoon when you want that coffee or that chocolate or that nap and you just feel tired and foggy? 
I feel like a lot of us are living almost our whole lives in that. And when you start meditating, that fog goes away, that exhaustion goes away. You just feel more awake, more kind, more clear. It's like you've taken a little vacation for your brain. And I just love that. Like I just like I'm craving it right now. I wanna I wanna do it right now. Because I would say it's a vacation. It feels great. Yeah, it feels so good. So let's do your for you super quickly before I get you out of here. Um so four quick answers. Um, type of meditation you rely on the most. I would call it so Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is the meditation of the Ziva technique. Current obsession. Jasper, my son. I knew you were gonna say that. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Meditate. Oh, I mean I tongue scrape, brush my teeth, and then meditate. Tongue scrape. I like it every day. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, favorite self-care hack? This is a simple one. Hot water. Just drinking hot water before meals is so cheap and cheerful and easy. And it uh, cleans out your whole digestive tract. You absorb the water more effectively. It's like a natural analgesic. It brings the blood to your gut so you can make more intuitive decisions about your food. And it doesn't cost anything. Do you do it every meal? No. I only really do it in the winter. I don't do it in the summer. But... Um, it just it just feels like grounding and delicious, and I crave it now. I I mean I get I drink hot tea like tea almost every single day, so I get it. Um, if you had one piece of life advice for people, what would it be? I mean, the short answer is meditate, but the <laughs> elaboration of that is we meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. So even on the days that you're not enjoying your meditation practice maybe do it anyway. You know, sometimes you don't really enjoy showering, but you should probably do that yeah, anyway. That was me this morning, by the way. My meditation was like not I thought you were like, I didn't shower this well, morning. that too. But <laughs> <laughs> So both, there you go. So maybe they're tied together. Who knows? <laughs> but no, it was like a rough meditation. And I remember just telling myself, just stick it out. Like yeah. it's just, just do it. It's like yeah. good that you're sitting here and it just wasn't a good one. Yeah. And this, even if you hate the meditation, you still feel better afterwards. And you're also building personal integrity. Yeah. I was going to say, I, you're proud. I was proud of myself. Yeah. I was like, not your best. Maybe you'll do it later to like make up for it. But like. You did it. I did it. Gold stars. Yeah. Check. (laughs) I'm competitive too. But by the way, to that, I do think what happens when you meditate, if you are naturally a competitive person, it's not like competitive with the outside anymore. It's more like you have this competitive nature. With yourself. With yourself. Like you like to push yourself to the best you think you can be. So like, even though, yes, I'm still competitive, I'm rarely competitive with another human now. Like there's rarely anything that gets me like, I need to be like, the, I, I actually don't remember the last time I felt that way. Great. But like, that's who I was. Like, I'm just, I have it in me too. I think we're very similar that way. Yeah. But it becomes a fun thing more for me. It's like a fire, which I like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. She has like a million things happening today. So we're going to do this incredible giveaway. We'll give the rules, but like, she's awesome. Go check out her stuff. We have all of your stuff. We have all of her stuff online. So go check out her website. Go. She has so many fun things to offer. And thank you so much for being here. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for being here. You were so great. You guys, if you want to continue this discussion, make sure you go to our closed Facebook group, Den Talks Podcast on Facebook. We have like really amazing conversations after our every episode. So please go there. If you're not a subscriber already, please subscribe and also write a review. It helps us so much you don't even understand. And enter the giveaways. You get a chance to get a free book from Emily, which is incredible. So now Emily's going to lead us in her personal practice, which is a combination of breathwork and mindfulness practice. Hi, friends. Welcome to the audio version of the superpower pose from Stress Less, Accomplish More. So while writing this book, I often like to imagine stress as the villain, you as the superhero, and these powerful mental techniques as your new superpower. So this particular exercise, we're going to activate the brain, the breath, and the body so we can get into the mind space of success right off the bat. 
Now, as you know, our body language is affected by our mental state. We can usually tell if someone's having a bad day just by their body language. But conversely, our mental state is also affected by our body language. So what we're going to do in this exercise is create the physical posture of victory so that we can access that mental state. So to begin, I actually want you to stand up and bring your arms over your head so that you make a giant V shape or what referees do to signal a touchdown. Make sure your palms are open and facing each other. Now, your arms might start to get a little tired, but that's okay. It's part of it. And as you hold this pose, we're going to start something called breath of fire. It's a fast in, out through the nostrils. And we begin by softening the jaw, letting our lips gently part, soften your brow, and holding the arms in this V pose, I want you to quickly inhale and exhale through both nostrils at the same time. So we'll start slow and eventually we'll build it up to the pace of a really excited puppy. So let's do it together. Taking a nice long exhale. Really good. So that was about 30 seconds. So we're going to do it again, but this time for 45 seconds. And as you're doing it, I want you to take a peek at your belly and you should see it quickly rising and falling. We really want the breath to be coming in and out through the belly. And as I said, your arms may start to ache a bit, but I encourage you to stay in it. Let that fire happen in your arms. This will get easier the more you practice. You might even start to feel a little lightheaded. And if you feel like you're going to faint, please do sit down. But a little bit of lightheaded, I would stay in the saddle. All right. So again, take your arms up into this V position, palms open, facing each other like you're in the victory pose. And we'll start slow and we'll build up to a faster pace. And this time we're going to do it for 45 seconds. So as a reminder, we're inhaling and exhaling through both nostrils, letting the jaw hang loose and the lips gently parted. Let's begin. So this is the pace you want to continue, like you're a little happy puppy. And I want you to imagine yourself being a vessel for nature to work through you as you do this breath. Imagining yourself as a giant channel for energy, ideas, and intuition to flow through you. Get your ego, your doubts, and your attachment to outcome out of the way. You are simply the conductor. Picture yourself as a giant antenna with energy entering your body through your arms and at the top of your head, traveling down your body and grounding through your feet. Enjoying the simultaneity of lightness and groundedness happening in your body right now. Really good. And so let's finish the breath of fire with a long exhale and drop the arms. Really good. So keeping the eyes closed, but taking a moment to substantiate this beautiful sensation that we just created and noticing how different you feel now from when you started. Feeling your head, your arms, your hands, noticing your lungs, your organs, noticing that they've all just gotten a hit of oxygen, that you've lit up your brain, you've oxygenated your organs, 
Just taking a big, long, delicious, luxurious breath. And exhaling, enjoying the sensation in your body, giving yourself a big internal high five. And knowing that you can do this superpower pose anytime you need a hit of confidence or you need a little boost before a big event. All right, friends, here's to stressing less and accomplishing more. I hope you have a beautiful day. 10 Talks is produced by Mike Burns, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, and music is by Alex Vetter. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.